It's a privilege to be able to introduce to you uh, our next speaker, J.D. Crowley. Um, I have had the, uh, the privilege of hearing him at, many multi- or at multiple missions conferences, uh, both, well, especially when I was at Northland Baptist Bible College. He was definitely a favorite, probably the favorite of our students at that school. And uh, hearing his heart and his burden for the mission field, uh, I know that uh, he was a good recruiter too. So uh, he had a lot of our students coming and visiting him. Uh, one of our faculty members, he recruited one of our faculty members, an Old Testament professor uh, who is now serving with him in Cambodia, reaching those people there. Um, Two of my close friends love J.D. Crowley, one of my friends uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Andy Nacelli, and he co-authored the book that some of you got if you were one of the first people who registered. Andy speaks very highly of J.D. and has encouraged me to bring him in here. And then uh, probably my closest friend in the world is also a relative. Uh, His name is Brian Blazowski, and uh, we taught for 11 years at North, and we grew up together in Clymer, Pennsylvania. And so Brian and I are like brothers. He is my cousin younger cousin. And uh, Brian loves J.D. Crowley, just speaks so highly of him. So I've been, I've been hearing about him, hearing from him. And so uh, when we were arranging this conference, I wrote down my two top two choices of speakers. And by God's grace, they both decided to come. It's amazing. Didn't even have to go down the line. I won't tell you who's number three, but um, so just Rejoice! Actually, there was no number three. I was uh, had in my naivety. I thought they just might come, and they did. So, uh, JD, we do not take it lightly that you came. You traveled three days to get here, and um, so thankful for your ministry. Uh, you could read his bio on our website. Uh, Twenty-four years in Cambodia. He and his family um, has helped. Uh, developed some linguistic studies for some of the tribes there, has written a commentary on Romans that's been published in uh, uh, the language of Cambodia. He's providing theological resources for them as well and planting churches, planted multiple churches by God's grace. But we know most of all that uh, J.D. loves the Lord. It's the grace of God in his life. It's evident as you spend time with him. last few days I spent time with him. And as we're walking around, he's telling people of Jesus, even when we're in the car, he's having conversational prayers with, with the Lord, just asking for God to do something special here. So, J.D. loves Christ, and we're glad you're here. Thank you for coming, brother. Good morning. What a great Saturday morning this is. It's going to be a good day. Uh, just basking in the light of the Word of God, the warmth, the truth of it. Um, my testimony is very simple, a, a story of a dishonorable man who on whom God set his sights of love and kindness and mercy, and he has uh, honored me in every conceivable way, including letting uh, me and my wife be, uh, have a front row seat in watching God's Christ Church be planted in six different unreached people groups in Northeast Cambodia. Uh, 3,000 believers so far, I think it's gonna be 10, 20,000 over the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, about 70 churches so far. Uh, they, the tribal people have their own Bible schools now. And this is after 23 years. God's done an amazing thing. In fact, that, that, the, the last few words of Pastor Brent's message, uh, what were those last few words? God has done it, right? And that's, what, that's what, what's happened in Northeast Cambodia. We praise God. 
Uh, I've, I've admired from afar Dan Davey and uh, Brent Belford. Believe it or not, this is really the first time I've gotten to know, know them. I think I've shaken their hands before, but I've been intrigued by a church, a conservative church that's uh, grace-filled, uh, and I'm very much attracted to that, and I've, I, I see that it's real. I heard about it, and now I experienced it myself. Uh, and I praise God for you. And I can't wait for the Lord's Day with you tomorrow. Uh, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Romans 14, please. Why am I teaching on Romans 14 in a missions conference? Uh, maybe I got the wrong conference. Romans 14 is about getting along with Christians who disagree with you about matters of opinion or scruple. Uh, we call them third uh, uh, issues of, of third importance. Romans 15 is the missions passage of the book of, uh, the book of, of Romans. So why start in 14? What does getting along in church when we disagree over disputable things have to do with making God famous around the world? Yet, Paul is the one who forges a powerful and unbreakable link between 14 and the mission chapter 15, chapter 15. God guided Paul to make that connection, and our job is to, uh, here at Colonial, is to understand that connection and then live it out. Let me give you some background. In order to understand chapter 14, and we're going to take a flyover of chapter 14 this morning, we must understand the disagreements that threatened to tear churches apart in their day, in Paul's day. Almost every church in the Roman Empire uh, was a mixture of Jew and Gentile, uh, especially churches outside of Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, the Jewish Christians, before putting their faith in Christ, uh, were very careful to obey as many Old Testament laws as they could, especially laws about uh, eating certain things or refraining from certain kinds of food, um, observing holy days, things like that. Now that they were Christians, they, I believe that they knew that uh, Jesus Christ had pronounced all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. But once you're a part, I don't know if you know this, but once you're a part of a, uh, of a, a very conservative, strict religious tradition that goes back a long time, it's not easy to adjust your conscience immediately when, uh, when, when God tells you to or asks you to or you find that that, that needs to happen. Your head says it's okay. I mean this head, and I also mean this head, Jesus Christ. Your head says it's okay, but what does your heart say? Don't do it. It condemns you. And as a result, many Jewish Christians just decided to be vegetarians. They, you can never be sure that the meat sold at the Gentile markets had been killed in the proper Old Testament way, uh, letting the blood flow out. And worse than that, some of the meat was uh, in the meat market was meat left over from the previous day's idol sacrifices at the pagan temples, kind of a fundraiser for the temple. So you had double jeopardy there. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, didn't carry with them this culture of strict scrupulousness. And so the Gentiles could pretty much eat whatever they wanted to. And so you ended up with uh, something like this uh, in most of the churches. Uh, you had um, two groups of Christians, the strong conscience group, and the weak conscience group. Uh, the, con the strong conscience group said, you know, we can eat anything we want and, and it's, it's, it's no big deal. 
and the weak conscience group said, you know, we think it's best if we try to keep some of those, uh, some of those Old Testament regulations. Uh, and it was okay. <laughs> and uh, if things had stayed just like this, no problem. In fact, Paul would have let them carry on like this until Christ came back. And God would have been very pleased. But a couple things. One, it didn't stay this way. And two, Paul noticed that the split, the division, was, was, was dividing along racial lines. Now, when you're splitting firewood, you look for the, 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 the split that's already there, right? Well, that's what Satan does in every church. Satan is right now looking at all the possible divisions that, that are already here in this church because we're human beings, right? And he's looking to exploit those divisions. That's, all he, that's what he does. That's his stock and trade. And that's what he did then, back then. And he, wants to, he wanted to bring his ax right down in the middle of this split. And so you end up with not just differences, but sinful antagonism between these two groups. And so one group doesn't just say, yeah, I feel like it's okay to eat these things. You know, I have a strong conscience. My conscience doesn't uh, condemn me uh, when, I, when I eat meat. Uh, but then they went, ahead, they went further. And what did they say? They said, uh, I have freedom to eat meat, and those who don't are, un- are in error, theological error. I mean, Jesus said, food is clean. Uh, it's okay to eat. And they're just being unreasonable, neurotic fundamentalists. In some churches, like the church at Corinth, uh, uh, the, well, anyway, so the, the, the other group, uh, mostly Jews, said, had this attitude, it's probably sinful to eat meat, and Christians who do are being uh, unfaithful to God. And so we have, we have the, 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 the uh, increasing of tensions in a lot of the churches. But in some churches, it was even worse than this sinful antagonism. In some churches, like the church at Corinth, uh, those of the strong conscience group had become arrogant with their freedoms, even accepting invitations from their unsafe friends to eat, at, to feast at the banqueting halls that were associated with the temples. Now, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They were going because uh, they, they wanted to be, you know, be a part of the lives of their unsaved friends. They were attending for the food, the fellowship. Perhaps they didn't even notice the little ceremony at the beginning where some of the food was, was offered to an idol as a sacrificial portion. You know, kind of like, like the prayer before a football game in, in, in Virginia or Texas. You know, you just don't even know. It just, just, just happens. What they didn't know and what Paul had to tell them by way of very serious exhortation and rebuke in 1 Corinthians 10 was that just by being there, They were participating in what Paul called demon communion. We got the Lord's Supper, they have Satan's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 21. And you know what? Some of them didn't listen to Paul's warning. And so over the course of of a few years, in fact, it was already starting in the Corinthian church, uh, some of these freedom Christians, these strong conscience Christians uh, there on the left, went so far that they they carelessly crossed the line into immorality and lawlessness. 
I have freedom to eat meat, even go to parties at idol temples. And later they would even say things. In fact, it was already happening in Corinth. Food for the body, the body for food. <laughs> you can't help what, you know, my body needs this and that and the other. And so that's just the way it is. And terrible antinomian cults uh, grew from, 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 from this attitude. Antinomian cults, uh, lawless cults came about not much later than the period that we're studying right now. Now, after hearing that, you go, whoa, cliffs to the left. Better if we do what? Err on the side of scrupulousness, right? No, there are cliffs to the right as well. All you have to do is read Galatians and Colossians and you see that the, that the the right side has its cliffs too. Some of the strict believers started teaching that if people didn't keep the Old Testament rules about circumcision and food, they couldn't be Christians. The Bible calls these people Judaizers, sometimes the circumcision group. And it was a heresy that brought down the severest condemnation that Paul could come up with. Remember, what did he say? Let them be accursed, Galatians 1. So there are cliffs on both sides. There's a growing chasm in the middle. What is Paul going to do to keep these churches from splitting into Jew and Gentile? That would be a disaster. It would put a lie to the gospel. Just like segregated churches uh, put a lie to the gospel. Now, Paul's an apostle. He's, he has unusual authority from Christ. So why not just make a rule, right? Uh, make a rule. And uh, let's say, why not say, everyone has to eat meat since Jesus said that all foods are lawful for Christians to eat. Verse 14, by the way, makes it clear that Paul himself had, his conscience had the, uh, the, the freedom, the ability, the confidence to eat meat. Uh, he was free to eat meat. But here's the problem with that, the solution of saying everybody's got to eat meat. And the, that problem is the conscience itself. It misunderstands how conscience works. It forgets that conscience is a gift from God, must not be disregarded, must not be sinned against, must not be seared. It is dangerous to compel somebody. In fact, it is wrong, generally, to compel somebody. God can do it, but we can't. To compel somebody to go against his or her conscience. Because the second, we'll see this afternoon, the second most important principle of conscience is Obey it. Do what it says. God didn't give you a conscience so that you wouldn't listen to it. Obey your conscience. Never sin against it. On the other extreme, Paul could have made a different rule. He could have said, okay, you know what? Everyone must refrain from eating meat just in case. Now, this is generally our, historically, our fundamentalist uh, solution. But this solution denies the freedom that our Lord Jesus Christ gave. Are we holier than God? And, and, and remember I just said just to be safe, right? Is it safe? Is that safe? Is the cliff on that side safer than the cliff on this side? No. It's not safe. Anathema is not safe. It's very unsafe to go to hell. So what's Paul going to do? All four of these columns are displeasing to God. None of these. If you, if you land in any, any of these four, if you find yourself sort of fitting into one of these, you're not pleasing to God. 
So what's what, what's going to be the glue that's Paul going to that Paul is going to use to 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 keep this ever widening split from happening? It was not the glue of a new law. It was the glue of love. Romans fourteen is filled with love. In fact, you can give it the title showing love when there are church disagreements. It's love from beginning to end, and even into chapter 15. Now, this next chart is going to, you're going to, you're going to wish you hadn't gotten out of bed this morning. But it's not that complicated. Basically, I'm just going to push over these two useless solutions. Uh, In fact, wicked and evil and sinful uh, options, push this over the other side, and in the middle, put in Paul's solution from Romans chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15. In fact, uh, and, and there it is, Paul's solution. I hope you can, the, the letters are large enough for you to see from way back there. If not, uh, I can get you a copy of this or a link to it. In fact, let's go ahead and gray out the uh, the left side and the right side there, and leave in the middle Paul's threefold solution of love. According to Romans 14, all three of these solutions are pleasing to God when there are conscience disagreements in the church. If you look at this chart, and find out that you land maybe uh, on the left side or the middle or the, or the right side there. You can stay there the rest of your life. God will be pleased with you. You'll be a blessing to the church. Here's what Paul told the free group to the left there, the strong conscience group. He basically said this, and I'm sort of synopsizing chapter 14 You can continue to use your freedom because in principle you're right about the meat issue, right? But what you cannot do, you must not do, is look down on those with scruples. Despise them. The word despise means to to look down on, to roll your eyes at. How many of you have ever had that feeling towards somebody who was unnecessarily scrupulous? Raise your hand. You just kind of go, oh, brother. Yeah, we've all been there. And somebody probably has had that feeling toward us, because <laughs> there's usually somebody on this side and that side, right? <laughs> We're, yeah. Do not have that attitude toward those who do not have the confidence in their conscience to eat meat. All right, that's the negative that he says. Now the positive. You must welcome them. Learn how to get along with them. Learn and appreciate the subculture of those who, whose conscience won't let them have this particular freedom. And then here's my favorite one of all in Romans 14. I love this. Assume that the strict Christians are being strict for the glory of God. Assume that. Not just because they're neurotic fundamentalists. And one more thing. When you do use your freedoms, don't flaunt them. Don't be in your face. Don't post them on Facebook. You're not showing love. You are unnecessarily grieving other people. And most importantly, and this is, the, this is the key, this is the, he parks here in chapter 14, uh, he, more verses are spent on this, this next point than any other. 
Most importantly, if your use of this freedom, especially your flaunting of this freedom, emboldens a wavering brother to sin against his conscience, you're the one who's sinning. The kingdom of God is so much more than your right to eat and drink certain things. And that's the glue of love for those who find themselves in the left column here. A strong Christian, fully persuaded, yet welcoming rather than despising those with a weak conscience. That is love. What's the glue for those with a weak conscience? Here's what Paul basically says. If your own personal scruples are causing you to judge others and bring division to the church, you are sinning and failing to show love. How many of you, I'll ask again, uh, have in, on some matter or other judged somebody else with these kinds of thoughts? He calls himself a Christian? Or <laughs> he shouldn't be doing that. He should give that up for the, for the sake of Christ. How many of you had, had, had attitudes like that? Yeah, I sure have. The kingdom of God is about love and righteousness and peace and joy and the gospel, not about food and holy days. And one more thing he says to to those on this side of the chart. If your own, uh, one more thing, stop trying to force others to obey the rules of your own conscience. Your conscience is for you and not for them. M-Y-O-C. Let's say it together. Mind your own conscience. (laughs) They already have a conscience. (laughs) Um, And it is not their responsibility to follow the dictates of your conscience. Welcome those who disagree with you on these matters of food and drink and holy days. Learn about them. Appreciate their robust conscience. Be thankful that your church has people in it with a robust conscience like this. And this is, once again, my favorite. Assume that they are exercising their freedoms for the glory of God. And once again, you can can park there. You can park there until the day that you take your last vegetarian breath and go to heaven. And God will be so pleased with you. You will be the fragrance of peace in our church. Are you, are you noticing the, the wisdom and beauty of, the, of all this? I mean, the, Paul could have really messed up on this one. I would have messed up. I'm so thankful for Scripture. But look at the center column. The center column is the example of Christ and of Paul, who followed the example of Christ. Our ultimate goal is not, and we're going to try to unpack this this afternoon at 1 o'clock, Our ultimate goal is not just to stop judging those who have more freedoms than we have or stop looking down on those who are over-scrupulous. Our ultimate goal is to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who became a servant to others for the sake of the gospel. Jesus joyfully gave up his unbelievable freedom in heaven. Imagine what kind of freedom he had in heaven in order to come to earth, to become a Jew, an obedient Jew. Why? To save us. That's in chapter 15, and we'll get there. Now, so we've we got the background. We've got the uh, mind-numbing chart now behind us. And now, Romans 14, verse 1, 12 principles on how to disagree with other Christians on matters of conscience. Just a flyover. Another, you can give it this title. 
how to practice being a missionary while you're still at home. And you'll see that will become more and more clear uh, over uh, 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 this teaching and the teaching this afternoon. Number one, welcome the, here's the first principle. Um, welcome those with different conscience standards than you. Romans 14, 1 and 2. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Uh, NIV says, without quarreling over disputable matters. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Uh, Now, verse 2 makes it very clear that the weakness here, the weak faith here, is not the, the word faith here is not the same as in the context of chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. I'm not saying they're totally unrelated. I'm saying that weakness here is described very clearly as the, uh, the, the inability to have confidence, fide, confide, fidence, faith to do a particular activity. In this case, uh, it was eating meat, uh, and in a few uh, minutes, a few uh, verses later, uh, the inability to, uh, to, re- to refrain from celebrating certain Jewish holy days. So it's not, these aren't weak Christians. They might, in fact, be the strongest Christians in in the church. Uh, But their conscience lacks confidence to do a particular activity. I mean, uh, the best example to me is Peter. When Christ sent him the vision, remember chapter 10 of Acts? Christ sent him this vision of the animals, and then the command from God comes from the Lord Jesus probably in Acts 10 to eat food that his conscience revolted against. Now, Peter knew that it was no longer a, uh, uh, that Jesus had, had declared all foods clean. He knew that. But his conscience revolted. He said, no, Lord. Now, Peter was not a weak Christian. He was an apostle. He may have been the strongest Christian alive. But his conscience was unable to have the confidence to eat certain foods and to receive Gentiles into his house. And for him, those were connected, and he saw the connection immediately. Wish we could talk a lot about that. Number two, second principle. Those who are strong in conscience, that in other words, have freedom to do a particular thing, must not look down on, despise those who don't have freedom. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise or treat with contempt. Look down on the one who abstains. And that's always a temptation, isn't it? To say, oh, brother, these people don't, have the, don't understand the freedom we have in Christ. They're not mature like us. They're legalistic. The other group is tempted in a different way. Those with a weak conscience, look, uh, third principle, those with a weak conscience, uh, so their conscience restricts them, probably mostly Jews, must not be judgmental toward those who have freedom. Romans 14, verses 3 through 4. Listen to verse 3 from the middle. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And that's always the temptation of those who are scrupulous. Now, Paul gives two reasons why it's so wrong to look down on or to judge other believers when we disagree. Look at verse 3, toward the end of verse 3. For God has what? God has welcomed him. God has received him. Are we going to reject someone whom God has welcomed? Are we holier than God? God allows his people to have different opinions on third-level matter, third-level matter. First-level matters, no. That, that, those are matters that if, you, if, if, if you're wrong, if you disagree on that, uh, disagree 
on first level matters, you're not a Christian. Second level matters are matters that are still very important. In fact, we might we decide what church to go to because of second level matters. Uh, believers' baptism, things like that. They're very important. But we wouldn't say someone's not a Christian uh, if they disagree over those things, like we would with first level matters. And then there's third level matters, which is what we're talking about t- t- today. Uh, these are things God allows, and, and once again, you can still feel very strongly about them. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, be a person of conviction. Decide what you believe and follow after it. But uh, make sure you, uh, you do it in a way that fits with, with what, what the Lord is teaching us here. So, secondly, the second reason it's so wrong to judge or to condemn is that you're not the master of other believers. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That person's conscience doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. Let's look at the fourth principle. The fourth way we practice missions is, uh, before we actually become missionaries, is that each believer must be fully convinced of his position in his own conscience. Verse 5, one person esteems one day, so now he brings in another example. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now this doesn't mean that your conscience is always right and never needs calibration, but it does mean you cannot be a healthy Christian and waver back and forth like a stalk of grass in the wind. Sometimes sinning against your conscience, sometimes obeying it. You get to decide your present position on whatever the issue is, and then live consistently with that. Don't waver like a blade of grass. The fifth principle in verse 14, uh, chapter 14 is that we must assume, and this is the one I love the most, we must assume that others are partaking or abstaining for the glory of God. Notice how kind and loving Paul is to both sides. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. He doesn't say, oh, come on. Uh, that's, that's just Old Testament stuff. He says, no, you're doing it for the glory of God. Praise God. And then he says, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. And this is not the, this is not the kind of thing the scrupulous thing person wants to hear or the, or, or the, or, or the free person wants to hear. But this is, the, this is the attitude that Paul commands, commands in chapter 14. He gives thanks to God. And the person who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And then he goes on to say, everything we do, we do for the Lord. Wouldn't it be amazing to be in a church like that? Wouldn't it just be so amazing? Church that just assumes the best instead of putting the worst possible spin on what other people are doing. So whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Sixth way to practice missions in church or to get ready for missions is to think a lot about the judgment day. Do not judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Notice they're bo- both sides are in this verse. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. If you and I thought more about our own situation before the throne of God on the final day, we would be probably less likely to pass judgment on fellow Christians about these matters. We have such short lives. We can't just spend them meddling. 
in the choices of others. The seventh way to practice missions in church, and if you don't get this one down, you can't be a missionary. Number seven, your freedom to eat meat is theologically correct, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of a weak brother, Romans 14, 13 through 15. Now, notice, it, it, don't let it destroy the faith of a weak brother. If it just annoys the weak brother, that's the weak brother's problem, frankly. But if it annoys, and sometimes the word grieve is used. Uh, the, this, is a, uh, a stumbling, this is what we call the stumbling block principle. Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and this, this, this gives us insight into Paul's own position. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul has a strong conscience. Robust. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And notice Paul understands how conscience works. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Strong language. So do not let what you regard as good. And that would be enjoying the freedoms that Christ gave us concerning food. Don't let what you consider good be spoken of as evil. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another, to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And this word stumble is a very strong word. And so free and strict Christians have, a respons- have responsibilities toward each other. But the second half of the book, uh, the, the chapter uh, of Romans 14 places the bulk of responsibility on the Christians with a strong conscience. And one obvious reason is that they claim to be strong, right? (laughs) So he says, are you strong? Yeah, I'm strong. Okay, let's show your strength. God calls on them to bear the weaknesses of the weak. Are you strong? Show your strength by bearing the weaknesses of the weak. That's strength. And another reason is the strong have double the choices of the weak on any given matter. Does that make sense? The strong can either participate or not or abstain. The weak can only abstain. And so basically, Paul is saying, you, you got uh, implying, you have double the options. You have, in fact, you have an option. They don't have an option. And so use this gift wisely by considering how your actions affect the sensitive consciences of your brothers and sisters. Let's go to the eighth principle. Disagreements about eating and drinking and other disputed conscience issues are not important in the kingdom of God, except that that God's going to use them to to help us uh, do the hard work of getting along. They're important in that sense. But food and drink and other things are not important. He says what's important is righteousness, peace, and joy. Romans 14, verses 16 through 21. Let's look at verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. I love that verse. And this is, this is kind of what I said a few minutes ago. You can, if you treat each other this way, you can, you can park in that column till the Lord Jesus comes back and God is pleased. 
You serve Christ in this way. And specifically, this is talking about those who are strong, bearing with the weaknesses of the, of, of the weak. And so, keep the big things big and the small things small. Do theological triage. You know what medical triage is. You, perhaps you've been to the emergency room and someone comes in after you and they take that person because their appendicitis is bursting and that's more important than your hangnail. That's triage. The ninth way to practice missions in church is what we talked about earlier, M-Y-O-C. Look at uh, the ninth point here. If you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. The faith that you have, and this is another way we know, by the way, that the word faith in this context is not talking about salvation, saving faith. It's talking about faith in regard to the ability, the confidence you have to do something. He says the faith that you have, keep between yourself and in God. You're most assuredly not supposed to keep your saving faith between yourself and God. You're supposed to proclaim your faith in Christ. So what he's saying here is you have much freedom in Christ, but don't flaunt it or show it off in a way that may cause others to sin. That's the message to those with a strong conscience. And those of you with a weak conscience have a responsibility not to police others by pressuring them to be strict like you. They should follow God, not your conscience. Number 10, a person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. Romans 14, 22. Look at the second half of 22. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Obeying your conscience is is the second greatest principle of conscience. If you want to know what the first greatest principle of conscience is, you have to come back at 1 o'clock today. But obeying your conscience is the second great principle of conscience. If you get into the habit of not listening to your conscience, be careful. It's the beginning of the end for you. Shipwreck. Shipwreck is ahead of you. Four independent Baptist missionaries had to return home or go to prison in Cambodia because of pedophilia. Do you think... That, they, that, that when they were in, on deputation, they were going, man, I want to go out there where it's easy to commit that sin. I, I hope not. I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think they probably went there. They wanted, to, they wanted to, to make God famous around the world. But at some point in their life in Cambodia, their conscience told them, stop it, stop it. And they told their conscience to shut up. They're in jail now, here and in Cambodia. They shipwrecked their lives and their family and the victims of their blasphemous sin. They knew their conscience was warning them correctly and they didn't listen. And now we come to the 11th and 12th ways to practice mission in church. 11, we must follow the example of Christ who put others first. Uh, Romans 15, let's look at Romans 15, 1. We who are strong, Paul puts himself in the category of strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. The word failings, I think, is too strong here. It means weaknesses of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, 
<coughs> excuse me, we might have hope. It takes a lot of endurance, by the way, to consistently live in this Romans 14 kind of way in this church. You need endurance. You need hope. And God will give it to you. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, see, according to the example of Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, this amazing chapter is bookended in, in, uh, in uh, th- this, this amazing section that began in chapter 14, verse 1 is finally bookended in verse 7 of chapter 15 with this final principle. We bring glory to God when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And it's very similar to chapter 14, verse 1. There is the addition, though, of the example of Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, I promised you earlier I would show you an unbreakable link that Paul himself forges between the mundane getting along in chapter 14 and then the amazing message of missions in chapter 15. And here it is. Ready? He makes it, first of all, in in, in verse 3. Well, let's start at verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For, here it is, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. But it's even clearer, I think, in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Romans 15, 7 through 8. Now, do you see the connection? Verse 7 says, learn to love and welcome and reach out to those in your church who are different from you. Why? Verse 8, because that's what Jesus did for the world. When he left heaven to be born as a Jew, to become a servant to the Jewish race and culture so that the whole world could be saved. Now, notice he uses the word circumcised. Uh, Christ became a servant. He doesn't say to Israel or to the Jews. He says he became a servant to the circumcised. Now, why did he use that particular word? I think he used it to remind us that Christ didn't just come to some nation or some people. He came to a culture, an entire culture, that was already very much set in stone. Uh, And and it was a culture that already had its worldview, expectations, rules, traditions already intact. And circumcision was probably the most famous of those. And Jesus came and happily submitted himself to that. Now ponder this as as we bring this to a close. Just think about this. Let this blow your mind. The Son of God, who was not a Jew. Sometimes we forget that. You know, think God's a Jew, right? God wasn't a Jew. God's God's not a human being. Uh, The Son of God, who was not a Jew, it says he became a Jew, left his complete and absolute freedom in heaven and became a good little Jewish boy. Grew up into a good law-keeping Jewish man. The whole time, perfectly, completely submitting himself to laws that he himself had given at Mount Sinai 1,500 years before. Even, listen to this, even obeying laws that he himself knew were, were temporary because he designed them to be temporary. Jesus designed them to be temporary, like, like don't eat pork and worship only in Jerusalem. The only laws he pushed back against, and did he push back, were those laws that the Pharisees and others had added or twisted or misunderstood. And what I'm saying is this, Jesus in his life 
practiced what he later led Paul by the Spirit to write here in, in, in Romans 14. He, he did this. He's our example of getting along in church. Paul makes that connection in Romans chapter 15. He fit into Jewish culture. He submitted himself to a culture that was foreign to him. He welcomed Jewish culture. He wasn't like in some movies a countercultural hippie who kind of railed against everything traditional. He wasn't some weird outsider or misanthrope. He went to synagogue every week. He went to the temple in Jerusalem with his parents. He dutifully celebrated Passover. He rested on the Sabbath. He became a servant to the Jewish people and to the Jewish culture. Now, what happens when people live that, that way? What, what did the Son of God purpose to accomplish when he, for the glory of God, voluntarily came and uh, voluntarily became what he was not, a servant to a particular culture that was not originally his own? Look at verses 8 and 9. And uh, we're going to see uh, here... If you can see it, I don't know if you can see the little red numbers there. There are three. And let's go back, back up to verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He submitted. He became a good little Jewish boy. Why? To show God's truthfulness. So one of his motivations or goals was Godward to show his truthfulness. And related to that, look at number two, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch. So important that all those promises given to the patriarch come true so that God would be seen to be truthful and not a liar. And then look at number three, that's us, in order that the nations, the Gentiles, that's our theme for this, this weekend, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. What fruitfulness. Amazing fruitfulness. And then he quotes some amazing Old Testament verses. First Psalm 18. Therefore I will praise you among the, who? Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, and this is from Deuteronomy, way back in Deuteronomy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, nations with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will, who? Hope? The Gentiles. And so, Colonial Baptist, you are living, breathing results right now. Living, breathing results of Christ's being willing to become a good little Jewish boy and then to become an obedient Jewish man, and then to suffer on the cross for us, to submit to a culture not his own, to serve and love people so different from him. Jesus was the first, really, to practice it. He was the first. He he did what Jonah didn't want to do. Jonah, in that sense, was like the opposite of Jesus, right? Right? And then it was Peter's turn. I mentioned Acts 10 already. That was, that, that's like the watershed event of, of the book of Acts. Every time I read it, I get, I get goosebumps. Even though I know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know? Is he going to let him in? Is he going to let him in? 
(laughs) And he does. It's just amazing. He nails it. He connects, the, the, he connects that, all that food in the sheets and the kill and eat thing with receiving Gentiles. He understands that you can't have a multi-ethnic church until you have multi-ethnic dinner tables. Right? You will not have a multi-ethnic church until you have, start having multi-ethnic dinner tables. Eating together. Peter invited them in. And then Paul's turn. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And now it's our turn. We get to practice in our church how to be missionaries all the time. How to accept other people, their culture, their strange quirks, (laughs) their differing opinions about this, that, or the other, whether it's politics or food. Food is a big deal now, you know. If you don't have this kind of diet or that kind of diet, you know, and and, and even though that shouldn't be in your conscience, it kind of worms its way into your conscience. We'll talk about that more at 1 o'clock. So what's going to happen when we start obeying? We know what happened when Christ became a servant to the Jewish culture. What's going to happen when we start being servants to each other here in this church and in our community? We have no idea what amazing fruitfulness is going to come from that. But I know it's going to be fruitful, and it's going to be amazing. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we, we were born sinners. We were born leaning away from unity and toward divisiveness. Forgive us, Lord. We were, we're also, we were also born to see our own culture as, as right and good and normal and other cultures as strange and different. Lord, you made us humans. You know that we're dust. We ask you, dear God, to give us grace by the power of your spirit to love in the way that Jesus loved and in the way that Paul commanded us, commands us to love in Romans chapter 14 and 15. In Jesus' name, amen.